if we've got children that want to go to our children's ministry time, Miss Bethany would be happy to take them right out the back there. Excited for them to be able to do that. The rest of you go ahead and open your Bibles to Nehemiah chapter 5 is where we're going to be spending time this morning. And we're going to dive right in. Because as we come to Nehemiah chapter 5, we find Nehemiah still leading this rebuilding project to rebuild the walls and gates of the city of Jerusalem. If you'll recall, he'd been allowed there by the king and even provided with letters that made sure he had safe passage to get across the different areas and, and that he would have access to timber that he'd need to complete his mission. Nehemiah, we said, was a man of prayer and Bible study, and we consistently see Nehemiah going to the Lord in prayer for what he needs to complete the mission. He bathes all of his actions in prayer and then trusts God by getting to work. The people have faced the threat of attack from a group of opposing leaders led by guys Sanballat, Tobiah, and their fellow antagonists. And then Nehemiah rallied the people around the mission. He trusted that the Lord would accomplish his plan. And he motivated the people. And they worked together to see the work continue while also standing at the ready to defend the work. And there is this uh, just amazing picture of them, you know, having a tool in one hand and a weapon in the other. Okay? They're ready to defend if need be while they're doing the work. And all seems to be going well. Then we come to chapter 5. Because lest you think it's all hugs and kisses, please remember that this is a group of human beings. And they have sin natures just like you and me. They were not only vulnerable to attack from those who were opposing their work on the outside, but as we're going to see today, they were vulnerable to their own selfishness and greed just like you or I would be. And we are. This passage is about how the Jewish people were treating each other. And from what we can apply it to, from that we can apply it to ourselves as we look at how we relate to each other as the people of God within the church. So let's read together Nehemiah chapter 5 and see what it was that Nehemiah and his people now faced. Beginning in verse 1. Now there arose a great outcry of the people and of their wives against their Jewish brothers. For there were those who said, with our sons and our daughters, we are many. So let us go get grain, let us get grain that we may eat and keep alive. There were also those who said, we are mortgaging our fields, our vineyards, and our houses to get grain because of the famine. And there were those who said, we have borrowed money for the king's tax on our fields and our vineyards. Now our flesh is as the flesh of our brothers, our children are as their children. Yet we are forcing our sons and our daughters to be slaves, and some of our daughters have already been enslaved. But it is not in our power to help it, for other men have our fields and our vineyards. I was very angry when I heard their outcry and these words. I took counsel with myself, and I brought charges against the nobles and the officials. I said to them, you are extracting interest from each from his brother. And I held a great assembly against them and said to them, We, as far as we are able, have 
bought back our Jewish brothers who have been sold to the nations, but you even sell your brothers that they may be sold to us. They were silent and could not find a word to say. So I said, the thing that you are doing is not good. Ought you not to walk in the fear of our God to prevent the taunts of the nations, our enemies? Moreover, I and my brothers and my servants are lending them money and grain. Let us abandon this exacting of interest. Return to them this very day their fields, their vineyards, their olive orchards, and their houses, and the percentage of money, grain, wine, and oil that you have been extracting from them. Then they said, We will restore these and require nothing from them. We will do as you say. And I called the priests and made them swear to do as they had promised. I also shook out the fold of my garment and said, So may God shake out every man from his house and from his labor who does not keep this promise. So may he be shaken out and emptied. And all the assembly said, Amen, and praise the Lord. And the people did as they had promised. Moreover, from the time that I was appointed to be their governor in the land of Judah, from the 20th year to the 32nd year of Artaxerxes the king, 12 years, neither I nor my brothers ate the food allowance of the governor. The former governors who were before me laid heavy burdens on the people and took from them for their daily ration 40 shekels of silver. Even their servants lorded it over the people. But I did not do so because of the fear of the Lord. I also persevered in the work on the wall, and we acquired no land, and all my servants were gathered there for the work. Moreover, there were at my table 150 men, Jews and officials, besides those who came to us from the nations that were around us. Now what was prepared at my expense for each day was one ox and six choice sheep and birds, and every ten days all kinds of wine in abundance." Yet for all this, I did not demand the food allowance of the governor, because the service was too heavy on this people. Remember for my good, O oh my God, all that I have done for this people. This is the word of the Lord. Let's pray and ask God to help us understand it and apply it to our lives. Father, as we come, God, I pray that as I speak, you will help me be clear. I pray that the meaning of your word be clear. I pray you would help us to understand it convict us to the heart, point out any sin in us that we need to repent of, and God, help us to apply this message to our lives, to may it change the way we live in relation to one another, Jesus. Thank you, Lord. May I truly decrease and you increase. Be big here, Jesus, today, and it's in Jesus' name I pray. So as we come to the beginning of this passage, again, they've been working on the building. Things have been going fairly well. They've been unified. And then a concern gets voiced by the people or a complaint. Uh, there's an outcry from the people. Now, if you're spending your work time building a wall, then you're not going to have a lot of extra time to be out working in your fields. Okay, Bethany's dad is a farmer. He doesn't have time to build walls and farm his crops. Okay, I mean, I've, I remember staying there sometimes in the spring or in the fall, and he'd be out all night working. 
the fields left unworked would mean that people would have to find their food elsewhere because if they couldn't work the field, if they're working on the wall, they couldn't work the fields as much and they'd have to find their food elsewhere. And it seems that they allowed other people to work the fields in exchange for grain. So they mortgaged their fields for grain. During this time, even with the fields not being worked, the king continued his tax on the produce of the fields. So in addition to that, there's this king's tax that they've got to take care of because I don't know if you know this about kings, but they don't get so happy when you don't pay your taxes, which isn't that different than America, I guess. But anyway, um, different, different, but kind of same. So it's a complicated situation. And it's made more difficult by the added stress that, oh yeah, there's a famine going on in the land. So not only do they not have food, but it's kind of hard to come by anyway. Why was this a big deal? Why was it a big deal that they were mortgaging their fields, their vineyards, all that stuff to buy, to get grain? And then they were also borrowing, on top of that, they were borrowing to pay tax to the king. Why was all this a big deal? Well, it was a big deal because of this, because this is not outsiders and the Jews, okay, doing this to each other. It's within the Israelites, okay? This is within the Jews. God had laid out specifics for how the nation of Israel was to act in relation to one another and in relation to their money. In Deuteronomy 23, 19 through 20, it said this, and this is what they should have been living under. It says, you shall not charge interest on loans to your brother, interest on money, interest on food, interest on anything that is lent for interest. You may charge a foreigner interest, but you may not charge your brother interest that the Lord your God may bless you in all that you undertake in the land that you are entering to take possession of it. So right there, God tells them not to charge each other interest, and here we find they're charging each other interest. And so this complaint arises, and I love that the complaint at the very beginning says now, there arose a great outcry of the people and their wives against their Jewish brothers. So the guys were, were they're, they're all working, they're trying to build the wall, not as much food's coming in, and there seems to be some domestic trouble, <laughs> okay? The wives are upset because it's hard to cook food for everybody when there's no food, right? And it's during this time of famine. The people are mortgaging their fields to buy grain. They were also selling their children into what is referred to as debt slavery. Now, this is a common practice in biblical times. When someone had a debt they, that they could not pay, what they would do is they would sell themselves, or in this case, their children, into slavery to work to pay off that debt. I know it sounds terrible, right? The Jewish wealthy people, in this case, were thinking about themselves first. And we're thinking about how this affected the poor among them. They were not contemplating the effect that their financial decisions and their actions had on the ability of the poor people among them to feed themselves or take care of their children. And so they would loan them money or they would, they would maybe even give them money to buy their children into debt slavery. The, here are the main concerns for this outcry or that are involved in this outcry that the people gave among them 
okay, just to put this as plainly as we can, first was the inability of the poor Jews to work the land and provide for themselves and their family. Okay, so that's a concern that is behind them crying out. Secondly, another concern that's behind this is the way the work on the wall would suffer and be slowed if they had to stop to go work the land. They knew that if they had to go farm, not as much wall was going to be built. And they still had that looming threat, right, of Sanballat, Tobiah, and their buddies. They still had that looming threat of attack, and so they'd want to get the wall up, but they also needed to feed their families, and now the wives are complaining, and it's, it's like a perfect storm, right? Third uh, sort of concern behind this outcry or this complaint was the financial burden from mortgaging their property and borrowing money to pay the king's tax on the land. It was a double whammy. So I got no money, so I'm going to, I need food, so I'm going to mortgage my field so that I can get grain, okay? So now I owe that, you know, like that. Uh, but then also I've got this tax, and I don't have money to pay the tax, so I'm also going to borrow money to pay that tax, and now I'm, I'm doubly in the hole. So there was that issue of financial burden. Fourth, there was the issue of the pain and outright devastation from selling your own children into slavery. Uh, I don't care how common it was. Uh, that would be an awful feeling. Uh, that would be an awful uh, reality for that because of the culture to be the way that you had to deal with this. And fifth, concern behind this complaint is just the fact that vulnerable children, especially their daughters, would be especially vulnerable when enslaved to other people. So not only that they're the devastation of having their, their sons and their daughters enslaved, but actually the vulnerability of their children. Because when you're a slave, you don't have a ton of say in what happens to you. And for those being complained about, for the wealthy, those that didn't have to worry about where their food was coming from, for them, this was truly a failure of compassion. They were concerned for their self, using their wealth to get more wealth and using their wealth to press down upon those around them. The Bible has a lot to say about money, and we can't really look at this passage and get away from that. I found some questions uh, as I was studying in a commentary that I thought might be helpful to ask yourself as we think about, because um, there's nothing, I'm going to say this again, because if we're not careful, we could sort of go one way or the other with this message. There's nothing wrong with making a lot of money, okay? That's not bad, okay? Um, where it gets sideways, where these people get sideways is in how they use that wealth and what they use that wealth to do. So these questions I want to ask you are this. Do you fear God in the way you deal with your money? Do you feel God, fear, excuse me, do you fear God in the way you deal with your money? Because they did not. They were not because they were doing, expressly doing things that God had expressly said not to do. Second, do you deal with your money in a way that reflects your concern for God's reputation among the nations? Do you deal with your money in a way that reflects that you are concerned about the way God uh, is reputed, or not reputed, sorry, that's the way God, God's reputation is among all people? 
And then third, do you regulate your finances according to God's instructions in the Bible? Now, those three questions alone, I feel like I could almost say amen, stop, and we sing. I'm not going to. I've got more to say. Um, Because if we just think about that, if we just think about our answers to that, it raises other questions. Because if the answer is no, then we would have to ask the question, well, how can I do that? How should I be doing that? For years... Pastor, author, and ministry leader John Piper has advocated that Christians should live in what he calls a wartime lifestyle. Here's what he writes in one of his books. In wartime, we spend money differently. There is austerity, not for its own sake, but because there are more strategic ways to spend money than on new tires at home. Now, sometimes, let me just say, sometimes you need new tires, okay? He later in the same work writes this, a $70,000 salary does not have to be accompanied by a $70,000 lifestyle. No matter how grateful we are, gold will not make the world think our God is good. It will make people think that our God is gold. Nothing's wrong with making a lot of money, but you can either use it for yourself or you can use it for God's glory. The point is that we ought to live like we are at war because we are. And what that means is we should think strategically about what we do with what we have. That doesn't mean you can't go buy a new car. If you've got the funds and the money, then you can buy that new car and enjoy it. But we need to think strategically, we need to think strategically about how we best use what God has given us for his glory. We ought to, the point is to live like we are at war because we are at war. We need to live our lives making financial decisions for the good of God's people and the advancement of the gospel instead of only our temporary comforts and desires. I make so many, I make so many decisions in my life based on what's going to be comfortable for me, what's going to make me feel good, what's going to be, you know... Uh, one of my favorite things in the world is getting home and putting on my slippers. I got new slippers for Christmas, and I guess I'm getting old because I want to get home, I want to hit those sweatpants, and I want to hit those slippers because they're so awesome, and they're the kind you can slip into, and you can either have the heel down or you can pop the heel out if you got to, you know, run an errand or go to the trash can or something. It's great. But we make, the, so I like comfort. I, I like a warm blanket when it's cold. All right? I like comfort. I like air conditioning when it's hot. Okay? And I don't think there's anything wrong with enjoying those comforts. I really don't. As long as we're living our life making financial decisions not based solely on our comforts and desires, but based on the good of God's people and the advance, advancement of the gospel. Because if we really dig into this, and that's not actually what the whole message is supposed to, what, what the whole thing I'm communicating today, but if we were to make those decisions in our personal lives, based on that, it would radically change a lot about the way we live our lives. So a complaint has arisen from the people because of the way they're being treated financially. And so Nehemiah hears about it, and he confronts the offenders. He has this confrontation of the offenders. 
he hears it, and initially he's frustrated. He's angered, but then he gathers himself for action in verse 7. Look at what verse 7 says. I took counsel with myself, and I brought charges against the nobles and the officials. I said to them, you are exacting interest each from his brother, and I held a great assembly against them. That is strong language. Because these are, like, maybe some of his closest associates. It says he took counsel with himself. That is to say he was first ruled at heart. You might want to write ruled at heart down. He was first ruled at heart. He was frustrated, but out of the type of prayer and Bible study man he was... A person who loved God above all and sought God's glory, he took steps to correct the injustice when he saw it. He saw it, it made him mad, and he realized something needs to be done about this. He was ruled at heart by God and not just by his emotions, not by his reaction of just being angry and frustrated, but also not just angry and frustrated, but I need to do something about it. He was ruled at heart by God, and that directed what he would do. And I love the thing, the way that God has worded things in this chapter. It says that Nehemiah held an assembly against them. Has anyone, don't answer, don't raise your hand, but have you ever had a, an assembly that was held specifically against you? It's not great. It's not great. There was one once that was held against me and I wasn't even there for it. Still not great. Even when you find out about it afterwards. It says that Nehemiah held an assembly against them. In verses 8 through 10, we can see what he said to them. Verses 8 through 10, here's what it goes. He's, it says, um, and said to them, We, as far as we are able, have bought back our Jewish brothers who have been sold to the nations, but you even sell your brothers that they may be sold to us. They were silent and could not find a word to say. So I said, the thing that you are doing is not good. Ought you not to walk in the fear of our God to prevent the taunts of the nations, our enemies? Moreover, I and my brothers and my servants are lending them money and grain. Let us abandon this extracting of interest. So Nehemiah gathered to them and said, you're bad. It's a paraphrase. All right. What you're doing is not right. We've been buying our Jewish brothers money as we can out of slavery, and here you are having them sold to you. And he says, that's bad, that's wrong, stop it. But he also says, my bad. Because he says, moreover, I and my brothers and my servants are lending them money and grain. Let us abandon this exactive interest. He called them out for caring more about their own financial position than that of their fellow countrymen, and he calls them to change. But I want you to notice in verse 10, he realized that this indictment may have involved some of his people closest to Nehemiah. I am my brothers. He acknowledges guilt on their part, on his part, the need for them to change. He doesn't, and that's what I love, uh, I love about a leader when a leader will say, yes, you're wrong, and I'm wrong. When they will confess their own sin, admit their own sin. So he calls for a course correction, and he issues this call for them to change. A 
call to change. He's truly, what Nehemiah is doing truly is sort of like a picture. He's calling them to repent from this activity. They were sinning against one another and ultimately against God. And the fact that he got the priests involved was recognition that this was not simply between people, but between, the, between people only, but also between them and God individually for how they were treating each other and how they were treating the people of God. So they needed individual, individually to change, but they needed to corporately as a group change. And the call was to act immediately. It says this very day. This very day. They were not to wait, but they were to immediately display the fruit of repentance. They were not to sit back and think about how they wanted to repent or think about how they should change. They were to act upon it, which showed fruit of that. It was a real, hey, real repentance. We're really sorry. We're really making this right. They were to give it all back and make sure the people were taken care of. They weren't giving lip service, but they were actively repenting of what they'd been doing. Beginning in verse 14, though, we get through that, and then beginning in verse 14, we have a bit of a change, right? There's a bit of a change. You see this interesting comparison in that. A comparison between what we just saw of the greed of some of the wealthy people and this generosity, this charity from Nehemiah that we see. And it's really interesting as I read, it's like that's kind of a hard shift from you're doing this, stop it, change, to a passage that goes through how generous Nehemiah is after this. And I thought that is interesting, that comparison. I'm going to go into more of that. But you need to understand Nehemiah I never really thought about Nehemiah's wallet before this week. Maybe as I was studying the last few weeks, maybe it might have run through my mind a little bit. Like, I wonder if he had money. I don't know. I don't remember that. But before that, for sure, no. Nehemiah was a very wealthy man. This wasn't, he wasn't just some hobo in charge of the, building the wall. Okay? Listen to what Hamilton writes about his wealth. That's not Hamilton from the musical. That's James Hamilton, the commentator. Just want to point that out. Ten years ago, I wouldn't have had to give that <laughs> caveat. He says this, can you imagine slobbering an ox a day? I don't know how big Nehemiah's herd of oxen was, but he referred to a 12-year period of time in verse 14. 12 years multiplied by 365 days is 4,380 oxen. He either had a herd big enough to sustain that, or he had the money to buy that many oxen. Either way, lots of money. He also slaughtered six sheep per day, and in 12 years, that's 26,280 sheep. That's a lot of sheep. And when you look at the list of what he was able to provide on his own, it's astounding. Not only do you see him giving of his own, at his own expense, but you also see he refused to accept the allowance for being governor. This was an established practice for the governor of the land to have monetary and food privileges, but Nehemiah breaks that pattern. He won't take advantage of the people as the former governors did. He won't lay those heavier burdens on them as the people, the former governors had done. And so he won't take advantage of the people or the food that was allotted to the governor. 
If you remember in weeks past in this series, and if you missed those, you can go back and listen to the messages from the last few weeks. But we saw the difference in what selfless leadership looks like versus what selfish leadership look like looks like. Nehemiah was free to give generously because he had something better than either food or money. He had a love for people and a faith in God. He cared more about the people who would be taxed for his portion and the burdens that would be laid upon them for his portion and cares more about God's glory to be displayed than for any benefit he would get from using those things, that allotment or that allowance. And then he closes it in verse 16. He closes it. Well, he doesn't close it, but he gets to verse 16, sorry. I also persevered in the work on this wall. And we acquired no land, and all my servants were gathered there for the work. Not only did he not take the governor's allowance because of the burden it would put on the people, but he gave generously, he corrected the wrongs, but then persevered in the mission that God had sent him to do. See, Nehemiah was devoted to the mission above the prestige and position, wealth, or power. He was working to advance God's kingdom by building the walls because he wanted God's name exalted above all else. And that's what we've seen the last, all five of the first five chapters of Nehemiah is that more than anything, Nehemiah wanted God's people restored, God's name glorified, and God's name exalted above all. So as we look at that, how do we frame our response to this? What do we, what do we need to do about it? What do we need to uh, think and believe, and how do we need to move in our lives towards this? How do we frame our response? Well, Nehemiah desert, desired to see the burdens lifted off of God's people, and everything we see Nehemiah doing here is based on a life of sincere faith dedicated to the glory of God and the advancement of his people. It was selfless leadership once again. And that Nehemiah's final statement demonstrates his sincere faith and that mere human judgment won't always bring justice, but only God's will. There's a difference in the motives. The deeds of each person demonstrates their It demonstrates what they were living for, what they were working towards. We're all susceptible to this kind of misuse of money and lack of compassion because, as I said earlier, we all have a sin nature. I want you to look at verse 13. It says, I also shook out the fold of my garment and said, So may God shake out every man from his house and from his labor who does not keep this promise. So may he be shaken out and emptied. And all the assembly said, Amen, and praised the Lord. And the people did as they had promised. The consequences of not changing, of not repenting, of continuing in their sin against one another and against God was to be shaken off. And it's a pretty stark verse when you look at that. It's, it's pretty intense. 
And he was saying, there's, there's judgment, right? There's bad coming upon you if you don't hold to this. And the people's response, I want you to look at the people's response to that, because they weren't, they weren't like, oh, that's harsh. They didn't say, oh, that's, that's, that's pretty hard, old knee. No. They said, amen, and they praised the Lord. They heard about justice that would be done upon them if they did not change. And the response was, amen, and praising the Lord. The consequences of not changing, of not repenting, were being shaken off. Non-repentance faces judgment. Sin must face judgment. Those who didn't hold to their repentance would be shaken off. And that sounds pretty bad, but this is where I have some good news for you and me. This is where it comes into the picture because sin against God must face judgment. Our sin against God, left unatoned for, will face judgment and God's wrath. And if for our entire lives we refuse his redemption, we refuse to surrender to him, we refuse to believe the gospel, that wrath and that justice will be poured out on us in eternity in a real place called hell. But because, because God is just and holy and righteous and wrathful, but because God is also love, he provided a way for us promise breakers to not be shaken off. God's love and justice working together perfectly. And Jesus Christ is the only way to avoid judgment, to receive adoption into the people of God. If you're here today and you have no idea what I'm talking about, I'd be happy to elaborate further with you after the service. But the message of the gospel is very simple. That Jesus, 100% man, 100% God, came to earth, born of a virgin, lived a perfect life, never sinned, and then gave that life to pay for my sin, your sin, in your place, so that that justice do your sin, that shaking off, that justice do your sin, he took that in your place. The punishment that your sin deserved, the death that your sin deserved, the wrath of God that your sin deserved. And in exchange, when we repent of our sin and believe in him, trust the good news, trust Jesus for salvation, he exchanges that, and he takes the wrath we were supposed to get and gives us his righteousness, his right standing before God, put on us. And he died in our place for our sin. And then three days later, he rose from the grave, which proved, number one, he was God as he claimed to be, and number two, that it worked, that God accepted the sacrifices sufficient for all time for those who repent and believe the good news of the gospel, those who trust Jesus for salvation. So if you've got no idea what I'm talking about, I'd love to talk with you more about that. Another group of people who are sitting here, you might be thinking, 
you've continually broken your promises to God and you've misused what he's blessed you with and you're sitting there and you're feeling a little guilty. This is good news for you as well. Because of this, Jesus paid for those broken promises when he gave his perfect life on the cross in your place too. That was for all of your sin, past, present, and future, and that is an incredible gift. So repent and then go and sin no more. The end of verse 13 is amazing. The people did as they had promised. They made a commitment, they surrendered, they repented, and then they carried it out. This is a challenge Fueled by the grace of Jesus Christ, will you get up and continue on mission with a repentant heart? This passage made me think of uh, a passage in the New Testament where Jesus is approached by a guy. This is from Mark chapter 10, verses 17 through 22. As he was setting out on his journey, a man ran up and knelt before him and asked him, Good teacher, What must I do to inherit eternal life? And Jesus said to him, Why do you call me good? No one is good except God alone. You know the commandments. Do not murder, do not commit adultery, do not steal, do not bear false witness, do not defraud, honor your father and mother. And he said, Teacher, all these I have kept from my youth. And Jesus, looking at him, loved him and said to him, You lack one thing. Go, sell all that you have and give to the poor and you will have treasure in heaven and come follow me. Disheartened by the saying, he went away sorrowful for he had great possessions. I want to point out something. This passage does not mean that Jesus wants you to sell everything that you own and give it to the poor. Okay? Maybe, maybe some of you, but that's not, that's not the point here. The point is, The rich young man was sad and went away sad because he held his possessions and his wealth higher in his heart than God or his desire for God. He was unwilling to rid his life of that which came between him and God, namely his money and his possessions. And if we're going to be sold out to the mission, we have to continually look at how we are stewarding everything in our lives from our family to our finances and and our jobs and everything in between. It didn't take long into Nehemiah's wall-building project before the people got sideways because of money. And we must look at the same thing in our hearts, in our lives. I want to close with a couple more questions for you to think on. You may want to write these down because you may want to think on these during this week. Number one, do you think beyond yourself when you think of how to deal with your money and how you acclimate money? Do you think beyond yourself when you think about how to deal with your money and how you accumulate money? I think I pronounced that wrong. I apologize. But do you think beyond yourself? Do you think how it affects others? Secondly, do you ever ask whether what you do with your money harms other Christians or keeps them from being able to devote themselves to the work of the church? Do you ever ask yourself, or maybe this week, ask yourself, does what you do with your money ever harm other Christians or keep them from being able to devote themselves to the work of the church? Because you see how that relates to what was going on with Nehemiah? Folks, this gets down to the nitty-gritty. 
The question is, will we respond as the people did when they were confronted? Will we repent, say amen, praise the Lord, and do what we said? Will we respond when we are confronted with repentance? This is what's happening here today. You're being confronted with the word of God, and now you get to respond to that confrontation. So during this time, we're going to sing in just a minute, and if the musicians want to go ahead and make their way to the stage, I want to encourage you to ask God to change your hearts and to help us persevere in the mission he has set before us that only he can sustain us through to the very end. You see, there's not as much application as a li- of this as a list of to do, to do, to do list for you to go down and check off. You don't need more homework to do. Okay. What this is, is to evaluate with the Lord. Let him do open surgery on your heart. About any way that, number one, you've put anything in your life above him and above obedience to what he's called us to do. And then secondly, to evaluate ways in which we can encourage others in that. So I said it's the nitty-gritty. It's where we have to decide, are we really serious about this Jesus thing, or is it just something we do because it's something we've done? And that's a decision that has to be made in each of our hearts. Would you stand with me? This is the time where um, you're invited to respond. I'm not going to have you come forward or anything like that, but the word has been presented. And so now we respond in our hearts to what God has said. And so during this song, take a moment and pray if you wish about whatever God is working on your heart. Uh, You can pray where you're at. Um, if there's something going on you need to talk about it I'll be around afterwards we can either talk afterwards or we can set up a time later in the week uh, to do that as well but when we hear our presented when we're confronted with the truth from the word of God we will respond one way or the other and this is the time for that maybe your response is to just say thank you Jesus and worship him maybe you need to pray and let the words of the song wash over you and maybe you know there's something you need to do that you need to leave here and you need to go make a correction in something. Maybe it's with your finances. We've talked a lot about finances today. But maybe there's some other area of your life where you realize, wow, I have not been stewarding that for God's glory. And I need to go change that. And I need to start that this afternoon when I get home. And so that's what this time is for, for making those decisions. Let's pray. God, thank you for this time in your word. I pray that it's been clear. I pray that you would help it to reverberate in our hearts and minds during the week as we gather together again on Wednesday and discuss it further. God, I just pray that you would help us understand and obey. That if there's sin in our hearts, you would convict us and bring us quickly to repentance. That we may move forward with you, Jesus. And may you get all of the glory and the honor for all of it. In Jesus' name I pray. Singing.